I'm really excited about this episode that we had with legendary actor David Proval. David is known for playing Tony opposite Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro, one of the main characters in the movie Mean Streets, directed by Martin Scorsese, of course. He was in The Shawshank Redemption, Quentin Tarantino's Four Rooms, and perhaps most notably as one of the greatest villains in the history of television, arguably one of the greatest on-screen villains ever as Richie April in The Sopranos. This episode is sponsored by Recording Radio Film Connection. Whether you want to build a career in broadcasting, recording, film, or the culinary arts, RRFC gives you access to these industries, not by training you in a classroom, but by training you on the job as an extern. If you'd like to find out more, go on their website at www.rrfedu.com. Without further ado, Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. We are so pleased to have David Proval on the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, David. Hello. Nice to be here. You've been in some pretty amazing films and TV series, yes, I have. including one of my favorite Scorsese films of all time, which is Mean Streets. Yeah, of course. And you have actually a pretty prominent role in Mean Streets. You're the first title character on the, I was watching it again the other night on the characters where the guys put the there. title over their face, like when they yeah. have a scene, it's like that scene after the feast where you kick the guy out of your Dude, bar. Yeah. And yeah. that was so impactful. But before we get into that, yeah. I guess tell us a little bit about where you grew up. Oh, okay. And, sure. and I guess how you first got into acting. I grew up in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, New York. Brownsville, Brooklyn. And uh, I don't know if you know the area. Where are you located? I grew up in the Bronx. Oh, okay. And in Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan. Oh, it's East Brooklyn. It's deep in Brooklyn. Brownsville. I live up in Westchester now. Great. Lovely. And theater came into my life uh, early in my life through... My grandmother, who was a Viennese Austrian, she was an adopted grandmother, not a biological grandmother, but she was a patron of the arts and theater and introduced me to theater at a very early age. And through her, I, she encouraged me always to be at least a patron of the arts, if not involved. So that was that. She gave me a great gift, my appreciation of theater. That's amazing. Yeah, she did. Yeah. And... And then you remember like your, I guess your early training, was it like a Stanislavski sort of base training or? Yeah, it was, yes, it was. Um, at H.B. Herbert Berghoff in Brooklyn and in Manhattan, you know, the Herbert Berghoff studio, Uta Hagen. Uda Hagen, that's right. Yeah. Well, H.B. Uta Hagen. That yeah. was the teacher I went to. Plus the teacher I have now that I study with right now. And I've been with him for, since 1971, a man by the name of Jack Walzer. He's a great teacher. And as an apostle of Sandy Meisner and Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg and Harold Clorman, all the great theater people. So I, I'm still studying with them now. Today. That is amazing. I love that. We do Zoom classes. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But Jack Walzer turned out to be. And Uta Hagen, of course, and Bill Hickey. I've been blessed to have wonderful teachers uh, in my life. I was in New York at a time where they were all thriving and well and teaching. And it was in the 60s and in Manhattan, in New York. Theater was alive and you had Edward Albee and you had 
great playwrights all over the place. It's a very exciting time to be a young actor in New York. And so was Mean Streets your first film role? Yeah. Yes. And how did that come about? It came about because Martin Scorsese wanted John Voight to do the Harvey Keitel role. John Voight is a great actor, but I just cannot picture him as Charlie. (laughs) Share that with him because he couldn't see himself as that either. He didn't see himself in the role either. But we had, he was a fellow student. We we were in the same workshop together, Jack Waltz's workshop. And uh, he introduced me to Marty Scorsese. Oh, that's pretty cool. Was it right before the filming of Meat Streets or was it well before that? It was when Marty was was looking for his cast. Ah. He was looking for his four guys. De Niro, Keitel, me, Richard Romanos. The four leads. That's incredible. And I found this. And he found Richard Romanos in the same place. We were both all Richard Romanos, the actor who played Michael, the loan shark, beautifully played and he was fantastic. He was, yeah. Actually, I love what Richard did in that movie. I do as well. And there's a real progression of his character from in the beginning of his for people that don't know the film. He plays a guy that Robert De Niro's character owes money to. And in the beginning of the film, it's a little, it's kind of, hey, just, he's, he's lighter about it. He's, Don't let it get out of hand. Right. They're still almost buddy-buddy, but he owes money. It's yeah. clear that he owes, already owes the money. And then obviously there's a progression. Right. Until he insults him in front of people in the bar. Yes. That's true. He does. He's a nothing. He's a punk. Yeah, I don't have to pay you anything. And that's and to say that uh, to 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 you've taken the man's reputation away. It's, he relies on his rep. When the that's neighbor. right. And that brings me to another point. So, I, first of all, I got to talk about how Mean Street, how important of a film that is to me, just as a lover of cinema, because. Yeah. So many people talk about Goodfellas and that's almost like generically everybody's favorite gangster film. And for good, for good reason, it's a great film, but for me, Mean Streets, I almost have to put it above Goodfellas in terms of my personal taste because of just because of the sheer amount of times that I've watched that, like something just about that, the dynamic between that group of friends feels so authentic. Not because I'm in the movie, but I've said exactly what you're saying right now. I think the streets, in some ways, Marty, at his most freest, he was very free directing that. Yes, he was. And he really, his brush, his paintbrush, his strokes, just amazing. Such, such selections. And I didn't know anything. I knew a little bit. I did some television before that. But I'm watching this guy put the camera in places. I said, what is he nuts? I looked over one day and I said, this guy, does he really know what he's doing? <laughs> and he really did know what he that was doing. That is amazing. Yeah, once you saw the finished film, then you saw Yeah, really. I, he I'm put sure. the camera in places. I said, is he seeing us? What is he? It's amazing, yeah. But, but you're right. I, I'm so happy you said it. Well said about him being free because I was watching the movie again last night. Just in, And it was one of these things where I just expected to watch like the first five or six minutes of the film. 
because I was watching it very late last night in preparation of this discussion. And then I just was just hooked and just, just kept watching it. Most of the film, and you're right about him being free. Cause I guess that was like about less than a decade or so after the French new wave, or like it was the following decade from the French new wave. You could tell there's some influences there in, in terms of like how much he was cutting. And then there was like, obviously his own Scorsese style, like really forming. And I guess I'm just curious, what was that like for you to see that on the big screen for the first time? Were you at the premiere? No, I'm, we were invited. Marty called Bob De Niro was in LA. I was in LA. Harvey was in LA and Richard was in LA. And he called us to this tiny little screening room on Sunset Boulevard, like a shabby little screening room. We didn't know where the movie was going or if it was, anybody was ever going to see the movie. But he wanted the four leads to see the movie. And we got to, the, to this little place, screening room. And I was just stunned. I had never seen anything like that. Yeah, we all were, and I wasn't sure about something. I was, it had me. I was trembling. I remember trembling. And actually, there was one other person in the room. This is a great story. I've told this story before. And I looked over when the lights came up after the screening. It was Ringo Starr, the Beatle. Yeah, was sitting there, and somehow he knew Marty already, or somehow, and he got to the screening room. And he was jumping up and down. Oh, I've never seen anything like this in my life. He was yeah. going nuts. He loved this film. And that the music. Been, and that's like less than a decade after Beatlemania. So that must have been wild for you to just see like this pop culture icon figure just loving the film. 50 years ago. Yeah. It's 50 years now. Yeah. But what I'm saying is like from that moment when Ringo Starr was saying, that was just like, what, 10 years after the Beatles came to right. and became like a big sensation. 72, well, eight years. Yeah, eight years. That's what I'm saying. So, yeah. So that must have been just helped. <laughs> Nuts. It was just crazy. Yeah. yeah. Like, what are you doing here? And then I said to him, do you have it here from the other guys? Because they had already broken up. This was 72. And he said, nobody ever rings me. I never heard that expression before. Rings me is a British thing about yeah. that. Nobody right. ever ring, rings me. Nobody rings me. That's so funny. And at that time, like here in British, like nowadays people are exposed more to things on the internet and things on television. So I feel like in those days, it must have been different hearing something that was like very British. <laughs> no, but he related very strongly to the guys on the screen because they're Liverpool, from Liverpool, those guys are the street guys. So they grew up in the street and they saw this American. Yeah. So that brings me to my next point because the film, listen, I'm from the Bronx and from Pelham Parkway and grew up yeah. around Arthur Avenue. I'm Al Albanian, but I grew yeah. up around a lot of Italians. And just there, yeah. there's like a street thing in general. Like if something is a street thing, it's a street thing. And yeah. there was such a level of authenticity in that film and even in particularly your character, it felt like you really knew and understood those sort of guys. So mm -hmm. is that something you could unpack a little bit, like in terms of discovering well, that character? Yeah, I grew up in a neighborhood where I had a lot of prototypes, a lot, a lot of character study for these guys. I knew them. I knew the music. 
This is how I put it. I know the music. I know the music. And I know the I know this the nature of the being, the event. I know the nature of it, whatever I was doing. And Marty understood that I did. And the problem for me, everybody gave a great performance, but what happened with me was that after the movie came out and Warner Brothers were releasing the movie, they said, oh yeah, those guys are good actors. The guy who played the bartender, me, he's Marty's cousin. He's the real thing. He's not an actor. Who Who was saying that? People were saying oh, that. Oh, people were saying that. But, and that must have been such a, a great compliment to your acting. But it didn't help my... Oh, uh, I see what you're saying. He's just a guy. That's why he was so good, because he was real, a regular and great film critic. The woman, I've forgotten her name. Was it oh, Pauline Mike. Kale? Pauline Kale, thank you so much. Pauline Kale said in a review, David, Tony the bartender, played by David, round-faced, jovial, David Perver played with great authenticity, is what she said, with great authenticity. I took pride in that as an actor. That yeah, I Absolutely. I, and that's I, true, because the, I didn't, I've never, Pauline Kael was before my time. I didn't really read her review. Right. That film was before I was born. But, but, turned on but I wrote the same words. I wrote, it was so authentic. Yeah, but great, thank you. But the turn on me in that way, where when I was young actor, now trying to get work, and I had a showcase in Mean Streets, they were saying, "Oh, he's just an Italian from the neighborhood. He's a nice guy, but he's not an actor." I was at the same time working on Tennessee Williams in small theater in New York. I was at the same time studying my shit. I was an actor. That and that, that sort of hurt me for a while. Oh, he's Marty's cousin, and I and he had heard about that. And he said, I'm telling people you're not an actor, and you're not my cousin. I never met you before in my life, and he never did. Yeah. He just met me as an actor. So that's that story, and that's the truth. That's, and that's the truth. Yeah, it was bad. Oh, yeah. he's not an actor, he's an Italian from the neighborhood. <laughs> what was it like working with Scorsese? Was he a common collected sort of director? Or was he stressed out? Was he? My only memory is it's a lot of years ago. And yeah. we never got to work together again, except for seven years ago. I worked for him on a show called Vinyl that I did for Marty seven, six, six years ago in New York. The one with Bobby Carnavale, right? That's right. Yeah. Bobby Carnavale. I just remember him being a great audience. After every take, he'd be laughing applauding, jumping up and down. These guys are great. These guys are just, it was a great audience. That is amazing. And when you have a director, it's just such appreciation of what you're doing. You want to give them, you want to give them more. You want to, he just loves, I remember him just loving watching actors and just giggling every time. (laughs) That's so funny you say that because I heard Samuel L. Jackson on an interview say that about Quentin Terrence, that like the literally exact same thing about him. Yeah. He's I'm like, with him. Oh yeah. On four rooms, right? Four rooms. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you, that. you know my work. Yeah. Yeah. I saw four rooms and truly I'm a, I really appreciate you as an actor and mean streets was my introduction to you. And I loved your character in it. There's so many quotable lines from your character alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People do it over the years. It's really very, so flattering. 
Yeah. Because in Sopranos, they do it a lot too with the lines. With Richie Aprile, yeah. Oh, yeah, they do it a lot. They remember lines and, you know, wonderful. That's, uh, because I, my acting heroes, Marlon, of course, I, I can not be Marlon Brando. And uh, over the years, I've always done all his lines in movies. <laughs> I said, Jesus, people are doing my lines now. I used to do Marlon Brando's lines. So it's very flattering. Anyway, it is. I oh, yeah. Yeah, me and my younger brother have quoted Mean Streets many times. And yeah, it's an incredible film. It's one of these films, Is it's interesting because I think the first time I saw it, I was like in college and I'd heard about the movie because I'd seen like the posters and like movie stores and things like that. I knew that Scorsese directed it. So I finally bought like the DVD or whatever when I was in college. And I think the first time I watched it, the I don't think the full impact of the film hit me. It took me a couple more times of watching it where it like the movie grew on me in an exponential way. I think like by the, like the second or third time I watched it, I was like, holy shit, this movie is like one of the best movies of all time. And just like even that scene where Robert De Niro is coming into the bar and jumping Jack Flash is playing. <laughs> and it just, that is like an epic wow. cinematic moment. Isn't it? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah I, I remember clearly. I was standing. He took his pants off. Yeah. An improv, Bobby. Oh, that was an improv. Yeah, the hat check girl, who is a friend of ours, she's a wonderful actress. She just came in that day to help Marty out to do a little. And she was taking his hat, and he checked his hat. And I'm watching him, and then he took his pants off. I said, this is great. He checked his pants. <laughs> he was so loose. That's what Marty inspired in actors. Take a chance. Do whatever you got to do. Do it. That's Fly. Amazing. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So you would consider him an actor's director in that sort of sense? At that time, yeah. I haven't worked with him in 50 years. Yeah. Which is a shame. Well, he said that finally got picked up. I saw him at the rap party. And he held me very tightly, Marty. And he said, if we get picked up next season, it's going to be me and you. I'm going to be, I said, oh, Marty, that'd be great. But you don't have to say that. Don't make promises. He said, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Then HBO. Yeah. Wow. It could happen to the best of them. But yeah, that's right. there's still love there. When you see each other, it's all I love. Seen him, I, I hadn't seen him in so many years, really. And it was a, very emotional moment, actually. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be that, but it was. He was emotional with me. And he calls me Tony. He doesn't call me David. <laughs> he just always call me Tony the bartender, the Mean Streets. Yeah. And then and Leibovitz is sitting there, and he says, oh, this is Tony. <laughs> he doesn't introduce me. He just that's it. <laughs> yeah. Was it, was it surreal when you saw it? You saw it in the screening room. But then I'm sure at some point you saw it in the movie theater. Yeah, I had to digest the movie because I had not seen anything like it. A movie like that. I couldn't compare it to another I couldn't say, this is like on that. So I thought Warner Brothers, they know something. I guess they wanted to release the movie. It's a little movie. But I don't think people are going to get it is what I always feel. And then it know, the initial reviews were not wonderful. Actually, I because it was before my time, I really don't know how it was received. I know, obviously, said, who cares about four baboons running around Little Italy? Why should we care about four baboons running around Little Italy? Yeah, 
that's a pretty harsh. Yeah, got beat up, got beat up. Oh yeah, surprised. I see your face. Yeah, yeah, I am surprised because I guess oh, I had to assume since I, I assume that it just it must have been so well received because Martin Scorsese's career took off. He did Taxi Driver after like it must have been. I just thought it was. But F, no, no. But after Pauline Kale and Jay Cox and some other pretty cool people jumped on the movies, and suddenly everybody, I saw it happening. And they all said, oh, I see. Oh, I see. Yeah, Jay Cox, Pauline Kale, and somebody else, some great, said, this is amazing filmmaking. This is a Scorsese guy. He's going to do great. And they were right. Yeah. And then years later, you, you did a lot of other work. You did Shawshank Redemption, which is also on a lot of people's list of being one of the best films of all time. Yeah. So that's pretty Roger amazing. Deacons. Roger Deakins is the DP. Oh, he's yeah. my favorite DP, probably. Exactly. Yeah. To me, that's the key to that movie is Mr. Roger Deakins. Oh, and Mr. Morgan Freeman. Of course. That voice and his presence in that movie. And Tim was wonderful, but it's Roger Deakins. Gotcha. Secret to Without Deakins, yeah. no Shawshank. And I don't give a shit. I say what I got to say. Absolutely. I know it's Frank Darabont directing, but I'm telling you, Roger Deakins, there's no Shawshank. Hey, listen, you were there, so you know more than anybody. That's a fact, man. He's a great, great DP. He's so great. No Country for Old Men is also one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. Powerful. And anything he's done with the Coen brothers, Deakins, Deakins, Deakins. And he's still crushing it. He did Dune last year. Yeah, man, he's hot stuff. Yeah, but I don't think he likes actors. (laughs) I like. I know sometimes DP. There's a there's this tug of war where because I'm a filmmaker myself, and sometimes my DP that I work with could could the actor just not even move an inch, otherwise they're out of focus. I'm like, could you not restrict my actors that much? That's that's what it is. Yeah. Well, then it's not an art form if they can't control themselves. Yeah, there, there's a fine line. There is. And then, of course, you go on to do The Sopranos, which your character is Richie Aprile, who, yeah. who got out of prison and really is the antagonist against Tony Soprano. Yeah. I, he was probably one of the most noteworthy villains in the history of television. Too so that's really. pretty incredible. And again, what I said about Roger Deakins with Shawshank, David Chase, wonderful vision, whatever it was, but without James Galvafini, I don't think this is a problem. Yeah, I can't picture anybody besides James Galvafini in that role. Yeah, and David Chase is clearly a brilliant. The two of them, but the two of them. But without James Galvafini, I don't he had a particular kind of humanity, a particular kind of to Jimmy Gaudafini that flew off the screen, his humanity, his, the gentle giant he was, and yet he understood his rage in a way that scared me at times when I watched him. That guy was, he was born to play that role. Yeah. And that's why that, and it goes on and on because they keep, playing it hbo so it keeps getting new audiences has all new audiences at these autograph shows that they have for sopranos 
people come up, my mom and dad didn't let me watch the show. Now I can watch it. I love the show. You guys are great. I have to say I revisit. So I watched the show when I was first on the air and so many other people across the world. I was every Sunday night. I was, that's what I did. And I was excited to watch that show. And for good reason, because there was really nothing else like that at the time. Like it was an unprecedented thing, obviously. It's a pretty wild thing at this point in my life, even though I'm an old actor now or whatever. For me to have been in a movie like Mean Streets and then Sopranos, two breakthrough. Yeah. Breakthrough and a movie breakthrough. And for me to be part of two of them, it's just, I feel very fortunate, very lucky of two that will always go on and on. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. That's true. That'll go on forever. No, it's, it's thrilling. So, so your character as Richie April was so menacing, yeah. like a legit tough and scary guy. Yeah. How did you approach that? Chase, when Chase said something not too long ago. He said, from David Probal in Mean Streets and then Sopranos, two incredibly different characters. Now, people would say, what are you talking about? They're both Italian-American and both, but they're two very different. Very different. Very Extremely different. Two different human beings could be from two different planets. And I realized what I had done with that particular part of my life. You're a boy from the Bronx, Albanian. Albanians and Italians, there's a similarity, right? There's a kinship. Absolutely. Um, To have played that particular heritage, let's put it that way, two very distinctive attitudes and personalities so that the thing my in-laws wouldn't watch Sopranos. The name is Macarillo. He thought it was, he didn't watch it. Wouldn't. His Italian heritage. He said, I'm glad you're making money, but I'm not watching this show. I hate it. I understood that. I understood that and I respected that. So for me to have the opportunity to play the range, it's hard for me. To, uh, I, I, it was a great gift, both of those characters for me to be able to play. Because I always thought Tony, the bartender in Mean Streets, was really a good guy. I agree, yeah. He was a straight-laced guy. He wanted nothing to do with guns. He wanted nothing to do with any... He was already a businessman. He 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 had a love for animals. He loved that tiger. We got to unpack that scene, too. How was it working with that tiger? That was an actual tiger that was in the room, right? It was supposed to be a panther because it was... It was padding off of Joey Gallo, who had a panther in the back of his... Oh, it was a panther. I don't know why I thought it was... It was supposed to be... No, it was, you're right. It was a, a young lion. Oh, okay. Panther that day, we were at the bar, and the panther wrangler came, and he said, okay, we got the cat. It's ready uh, to do... And I knew this thing was coming up, and I said, I'm not. Oh, when, we can't use the panther because the panther is menstruating. I said, I've had... Four sisters, older sisters. I know you stay away from them when they're menstruating. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not going into a cage with a menstruating panther. 
And Marty said, okay, what else he got? He says, I got this big lion in the back of the trunk. <laughs> I swear to you, this is so... That's incredible. He says, okay, bring the lion in. I said to Marty, I said, if you go in the cage first, then I'll go in there. I'll do the scene. I was really, I don't know. I was giving him trouble that day. He said, well, why don't we just knock back up back the bar and <laughs> He went in for maybe three seconds and then jumped out. <laughs> and I did the scene. But when I went into the cage with the lion, the thing came up to me and planted its paw on my left shoulder. I've never felt that kind of power in my life because he was being, she was being very gentle. And the trainer is right next to the, with a ready, but he's right there but i felt them and it was very and the guy whispered this cat loves you I said, really? wow he says i know the cat she loves you she's got a scent from you she trusts you and she loves you and i relaxed with that and marty said wow it's a love scene that is amazing because you really do look comfortable. Like you, as an audience, I really bought it that you had affection for that cat in terms of that was your. I pet. love animals anyway. Yeah. I love animals. I yeah. But, but you looked very comfortable in there when all the other guys were freaking out. And I'm sure they yeah. didn't have to act yeah. too hard to. They gave me a great improvisational line. I, I wrote the line myself. I made it up and I said, where are you going, cow? It's the one that Italy lost the war. Oh yes. That's a great <laughs> line. <laughs> and that's something that you could picture a guy like that saying in a situation like that. hundred percent. The one that Italy lost the war. <laughs> That's cool as an improv. I was actually admiring that line last time. That's a really well, I love the line. He, yeah. I, he was cracking it for that. Like, love the line. Yeah. And I like how, I don't know if it was an improv or not, but Harvey Keitel at a later point calls you, hey, William Blake and the Tigers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was a written line. Yeah, yeah. That was right, yeah. That was pretty good. And yeah, I, well, you know what I love about that movie too? Like, when the scene with you and Michael's character when you guys take the money from those kids that are trying to buy the fireworks, you're like, Hey, let's go to the movies. You know I mean? It's like the first thought. And then when Harvey Keitel's character, Charlie first hears that it's like, Oh, we got 20 bucks. Oh, let's go to the movies. Like it was a given that was like, well, you're going to do what else do you do? Because the movies. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love those, that. Yeah. those kids. Well, those, and I'm guessing that those movies, those like Western scenes, was that stuff that the Scorsese, like that wasn't from other movies. That's stuff that Scorsese made, right? Yeah. Yeah, oh. that's pretty cool. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I'm assuming. There's a lot of stuff, but what was amazing to me was always that this is a, you sense, even though I knew very little, that you had somebody that was very special an artist that Scorsese, that was, you could watch him and see he danced on a set. It looked like he was a dancer on a movie set. He had such joy in him. And when you watched him, and I said to someone, what is he doing? And somebody says, he's editing on his feet. He's watching the scene that he's cutting. As he's watching in his mind, he's editing the movie. That makes perfect sense. Wow, that ain't easy. <laughs> yeah, he has, I come from a background as an editor myself and i do think that gives you an, an advantage to some extent because you could piece together 
yeah what you need when you have something as far as if you have a good take you could move on and, and you could piece things together in a really specific way putting the puzzle together in the puzzle together wow yeah, that's pretty cool very cool are very you still cool. a big movie watcher do you watch a lot of films i'm you know i'm trying to i'm watching a lot of documentaries is what i'm watching i'm a big documentary guy myself I love documentaries. And, uh, I, I always thought that stuff acting, I'd like to get involved with documentary filmmaking. It's too late in my life right now. I won't do it. But that was, I thought I would do that. I love documentary filmmaking. What's, what are some of your favorites? <laughs> oh, it's the obvious. Mike, Mike Burns, you know, what he's doing right now with the U.S. Holocaust. Gotcha. Ken Burns. Ken Burns, I want to say Mike, Ken Burns. Yeah. And then there's this Asian woman I've been watching, I've forgotten her name, documentary filmmaker. Have you um, seen the movie The Thin Blue Line? I don't remember. That was one from the 1980s about, there was like a guy from Texas, Errol Morris directed it, and Philip Glass did the score. And it was a documentary, but it was cinematic in terms of what was done with the film. And mm-hmm. I guess there was somehow this guy became friends with this kid who was 16 years old. They went out drinking yeah. they get pulled over by a police car This in Texas and the police officer got shot. And the older guy, the guy in his thirties is blaming the 16 year old kid and the 16 year old kid, they're both in prison. And then the 16 year old kid is blaming the older guy. And it's a question as the audience, you're like, who's the one that did it? Oh, and it was a great documentary. It's one of my favorites. Don't remember. I remember the title of the movie. Yeah, it was very, I remember watching, very well known. Theatrically, I don't I'm watching series on television, some series. Not watching much. I'm watching a lot of political news for the last thing. <laughs> That's what I'm really watching today. Lot, I guess a lot of people are. Yeah. I'm not so much, quite honestly. I'm not. It's because I get down <laughs> when I see a lot of. <laughs> Oh, it's I good see? to be up on things for sure, but sometimes I don't know. I don't. I I'm just, more of a reader of the news versus watching the news. I'm, sometimes I'm, I'll listen I'm, to, I'm into it. I can't stop. I'm into it. I did a movie, uh, the Universal. I did the lead titled Nunzio, N U N Z I L, Nunzio. I had heard of it. I did the lead on the internet. It was universal release. Yeah. It was a heartbreak movie. I did it in 77. It was only four years after Mean Streets. And I did the lead in this movie, Nunzio. I'm very proud of the work. I would love to see it. I play a mentally challenged adult who has a fantasy of being Superman. Oh, that's pretty cool. He has to protect his neighborhood, his Brooklyn neighborhood. And he wears a sweatshirt underneath with big N on it and a cape, like an umbrella cape in the back. And he puts his shirt over, yeah. And he goes out to save the neighborhood every day. It was Rocky Fever at the time and Universal wanted their underdog hero, another movie where the underdog makes him. But I'm attracted to that as a theme. Yeah. It's about the underdog. I think that's, I tend to write and with that, like always, like I made a feature film called The Trouble and that was completely, the people that liked that movie 
are usually people that themselves identify as some sort of underdog. And I notice people that don't really get it are like somebody that might've been the good looking popular kid in high school, the star athlete. They're like, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so I guess at this point we'll segue into the second port. Oh, go- it seemed like you were going to say something. No. Oh, I was going to say, we'll segue into the second portion of the podcast where I ask each guest okay. to talk about two movie scenes that they love. Yes. And I guess the first one we'll talk about is you gave me the two movies. I gave you a Breno, of course. Yeah. It's every actor's favorite. Yeah. See, and James I got Dean. to work with Rod Steiger and we talked about it. Yeah. And also James Dean in East of Eden. And James Dean East of Eden. So perhaps we'll talk about that one first, East of Eden. And for those not familiar with the film, first of all, go out and watch it. Sure. We might be doing some spoilers here. So if you haven't seen it, <laughs> spoiler alert. It's about a young guy that basically grew up without his mother. That's right. And him and his brother, but, and he's a troubled, you could see from the beginning of the film, he's a oh. troubled young man and a really specific sort of performance because I don't know, I guess, enough about other films that were coming out before then if you'd really seen a character quite like that. I'd imagine no. No, I think what Dean and Brando allowed was the anti-hero Montgomery Cliff also in that, in the spirit of the anti-hero, the 40s, late 40s, 50s anti-hero, the reluctant hero, the anti-hero, the, the guy who allows his femininity to reveal him itself in a sense. And his vulnerabilities in general. Vulnerabilities yeah. and, as Marlon and Dean, and it's okay for guys to cry and all that stuff we found out because they were still leading men and handsome and they cried. Hey, guys were allowed to cry, were allowed to wail. So those Hollywood movie stars gave us permission in a way for to evolve, for men to evolve. I believe that. That makes sense, actually. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's not, this is not an original thought. It's mine. That's what you were saying. But, and that's why I think their work is so important. Brendo and Dean, those two American actors. So in that film, I get his brother is the more sort of straight-laced guy. It looks like he probably got good grades in school. Yeah. He has a girlfriend. It seems like he has his stuff together a little bit more than James Dean's character, which clearly seems troubled. Like he's following a woman in the opening sequence of the film and somebody shoes him away in front of this house. And as the audience, you don't know yet what's happening, but as the film progresses, he's got a strained relationship with his father. And then as this film progresses, you realize that that's his mom. And then that's a brothel and she's a madam die. And then that's like the family secret. And that's like a bombshell sort of thing. And I'm sure at the time, Joe Van Fleet, Joe Van Fleet is the actress, Joe Van Fleet. Gotcha. And great actress. So the scene that resonates with you is when he, it's the scene with the father, right? When he gives yeah. the father. Take the money. Yeah. So at first the father is really happy because the older brother got engaged. And, he's, and is it the father's birthday? Is that right? I don't remember, but he needed. But it father. was something like that. He's, this is the best birthday gift ever. He's like, like he just said, oh, yeah. he said, this is the best gift ever. I think it's his birthday. He's like, this you is know. the best birthday gift ever. You got engaged. And then 
James Dean's character gives him a package and there's money in it. He's so happy to give his father this gift. And then his father just rejects it. He's like, no, I can't take this money and it's no good. You have to give it back. And he really shames characters for for giving him that gift. He goes into this meltdown, complete meltdown, begging his father to take the money, pleading with him to love him. Is what it was, pleading for love. And some actors to reveal themselves in that way. And Dean could do it. I mean, who knew what else he would have done if he would? Yeah. He did it, man. He did it. And what was incredible about, to me, an actor like that, it was, it's so interesting to just even the nonverbal, a lot of the nonverbal stuff. Because a lot of people think, obviously, because you've been doing this forever. Yeah. But there's some people that's, oh, yeah, it's a, like about the lines. It's that, that's a portion of it. But yeah, it's, it's like how much of it is just the nonverbal communications. And like, that could say a million words more so than like a line. Blessed to have Tennessee Williams or if you're doing Neil Simon comedies. Yeah, the words are wonderful. and But if that actor isn't, doesn't have fire going on inside of him that colors all the words that breathes life into them. They're just words. <laughs> They're just words without the actor. Yeah. It takes the actor to breathe life into words. Meaning you need actors actually. <laughs> of course. People yeah. sometimes feel, hey, there's animation nowadays. Who can make it look like they know, no, that they, 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 they really aren't alive, those characters. They don't really exactly. I don't think they'll take over for actors, the animated characters. Oh, yeah. And what pe- some people are talking about are like these deep fakes where people could take like the image of James Dean and then repurpose yeah, it. Yeah, they do that I'm shit. Like, I'm like, I don't know how that's going to play out. That's so not the. That's not what I'm interested oh, in watching. That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Okay. Anyway. Okay. We'll, we'll. What? So I. I guess I'm curious. What is? I guess I just w- would like you to comment a little bit more about that scene. A very impactful scene. Was it something that when you first saw it in the movie theater when you were like a kid? Like. No, I first saw it in the movie theater. Yeah. Wasn't. How old, what year was it? I wasn't that young. I'm very old, but. <laughs> I'm, I'm an old man. I've seen a lot. Yeah, I were saw you, the movie. I remember indelible, made an indelible impression. I kept seeing the scene over and personalizing the scene. My own relationship. I think it is powerful. It's a powerful scene because, yeah, it's it's. A, I could see why you picked it. It's definitely a very powerful scene, and I think probably a lot of people could relate to that. As far as especially, he shared a lot. Yeah. He revealed and shared a lot. It was pain, great pain, but that's about it. Yeah. So the film was directed by Ilya Kazan. Oh, yeah. Who also directed Brando, The Waterfront. We got on The Waterfront, yes. Yeah, the second scene that we're going to discuss. That's right. Um, my teacher, who I talked about, I, mean, I told you about my teacher, he was with Ilya Kazan. It was directed by Ilya Kazan. Some, I know I have a friend who worked with Ilya Kazan, Barry Primus, actor Barry Primus. Oh, yeah. Barry yeah. Primus. Barry Primus, yeah. Wonderful actor. I yeah. spoke to Barry today. Barry's in the class with me. Wow. That's pretty We're cool. In class together. 
Yeah, they all work with Kazan. They, Barry worked with Kazan and Jack worked with Kazan. Yeah, he's very special. His actor. On the waterfront, I guess you were very young. Yeah, 10 years old. Out. Yeah. So did you Nine see years that, old. did you see that later on or did you see it? I probably saw it later on, but Terry Malloy to me was that particular brand of maleness that we all were very attracted to. Marlon Brando's Terry Malloy and on the waterfront. His swagger, his attitude, his we all got a big we all wanted to be Marlon Brando. <laughs> I guess for people that are familiar with the film, give a little context of what the film is about. On the waterfront? Yeah. It's about, it's, it's, it takes place in the Hoboken docks and the union, the gangsterism amongst the union leaders at the time on the Hoboken docks. DJ Cobb plays a union gangster leader and these guys are underpaid and being exploited. And, and they don't know if they're going to work that day. That's another yeah, thing people yeah. might not have realized that it was just but on the docks and see yeah. you know they throw chips in it it was horrific it was a subhuman way of dealing with people on the docks at the time in, in, in Hoboken, new jersey so the opening of the film is pretty impactful because marlon brando's character goes to somebody's house yeah tells him to come outside he goes to his apartment building and tells him to, roof. yeah he's, he tells him to, pigeon. i got your pigeon joey i got your pigeon yeah he thought, then, he, he thought they were just going to talk to him on the roof. But and then when, they, when he goes up on the roof, it's really cinematic because you see the gangsters up there on the roof. And as the yeah. audience, you know exactly what's going to happen, even um, though it doesn't explicitly show it. And Leonard Bernstein do the music, so that sound on the roof, that whatever they played, that music, right after the guy gets thrown off. Yeah. And Kazan was a masterful director because... I feel like that film at the time must have been groundbreaking just in terms of, wow, I've never seen anything like that before because it had like such a, I guess the more I progress as a filmmaker, the more I realize like sometimes it's about creating this vibe. You're creating this world yeah. and a film has to have a really sp specific sort of vibe. Sure. And he did that like instantaneously. Like when you're watching that film, it it has that vibe like immediately, Absolutely. just Absolutely. like Mean Streets would later on in a different and specific way. sort of same, way. Same yeah, way. just capture, just you can taste it, smell it. Yeah, taste the air, smell them. Yeah. So the scene that, and it's a famous scene. The scene that you chose is when Brando's in the cab. Yeah. Uh. So maybe discuss that a little bit about what, like what's happening. His brother is trying, his brother is asking him to testify for the bad guys or be something like, and he, he goes, he talks to him about his boxing career and that his brother didn't look after him when he could have been somebody. The thing is, I could have been somebody. I could have been a contender. Is the and it's the it's the it's this loss that he takes in the cab. The way he loses. The way he says to his brother, "I'm a bum. Let's face it. That's what I am." And he loses completely. He admits to being less than he. And it's just. 
poetic stuff to watch that I think is poetry. It's poetry. It's not acting. It's poetry. Yeah. There's lament and kind of some everybody wants to do it and how he reaches. It's just amazing to watch. You got to see it. Got to watch it all. <laughs> Yeah. I watched a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No. And then I worked with Steiger, so I wanted to talk about it to him, and he knew that, and he teased me on the set every once in a while. I know what you want to talk about. He would scream at me. Yeah. Say when you're ready, we'll talk about it if you want to. And then he told me the real story, which I heard before. What was the real story? That Marlon didn't stay for his close-up. Really? He left to go to a psychiatrist appointment that he wouldn't miss. And he told Kazan, I'm not staying. I can't stay for him for his off camera. Wow. And Kazan acted with, and Steiger told me. And he wrote him a letter to apologize for it later, many years later. He wow. said, I was a bad kid. I should have stayed. You know, he, <laughs> Yeah. He was complaining to Kazan that acting with Rod Steiger, he's he called him a crybaby actor. He says he, he wants to cry in every scene. Randall called him that. <laughs> yeah. Randall called Steiger crybaby actor. Yeah. He's a great actor, Steiger. Yeah, yeah sure. He was in a, in his very late years, he was in this movie that I really like called Pool Hall Junkies. Oh yeah, that was a movie after the movie I did with him. Which went into the toilet, but yeah, that was Rod Steiger. Yeah, yeah, I really like that movie. Christopher Walken was in Pool Hall Junkies as well. Chris Walken, yeah, he's good. Yeah, I he's... worked with him too. Oh yeah, yeah, I worked with him in a stupid movie. <laughs> Which movie was that? They paid me a lot of money. It was so dumb. Universal, big movie. Chris Walken. I had this, they said, we just want you and Chris to, to improvise. I said, great, I love it. Improvise with Chris Walken, have fun. There's a movie called Balls of Fury. Oh, okay, I've never seen it, but I'm familiar. I've not seen it, I never saw it. What I saw on the set was, I said to somebody, I know this much, I'm not gonna go see this movie. <laughs> I, I remember see seeing the right previews now. for it. And as much as I'm a... See it right now, it's the most ridiculous piece of shit I've ever seen in my... <laughs> I've ever been on in my life. And it was a big film. They paid me a lot of money, so I... Yeah, take my yeah. money the whole amount. I don't even know why I did it. I know I did it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> Understandable. Bills have to be paid. You got a kid in college? Hey, you better come up with the money. Yeah, no, I never judge actors of why they take certain roles that's that's a profession and gotta make a living you have to work gotta, i'm a director gotta. if somebody hired me to make a remake of the next benji movie i'd probably do it <laughs> gotta work yeah you gotta work. i have mouths to feed i try to make it good i would try to like make do the best job that i do have the kind of mentality of whatever i'm doing at that moment i'm going to treat it like it's Absolutely. the most important thing i'm going to do i did not i do from there, I'm there. I'm going to do whatever I can do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, no, bang me and for myself, for my own feelings. Yeah, but yeah, I'm sure you could tell when something is good or not. <laughs> Sometimes you, there's no way I'm going to save this. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> what can you do, man? Yeah. And it's, 
like they say, it's not brain surgery and it's not cancer research. We'll survive a bad movie. Nobody dies from a bad movie. Nobody dies from a bad movie. That's true. <laughs> There's a, a couple of instances with Alec Baldwin. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. We were talking about that. I don't know if it's a bad movie or not. That was just most it's an unfortunate thing. It's a really unfortunate thing. My God, what a nightmare. Yeah. How any of that could have happened. Yeah. I just, could imagine something similar with Brandon Lee happened years earlier where it was the opposite. It was like that the a crew member shot the actor, but that was a horrible thing. I was on a movie called Shakedown, shooting in Brooklyn, Sam Elliott. It was the Sam Elliott, the cowboy Sam Yeah, Elliot. the actor. Yeah, yeah. Good actor, too. He's very yeah. good. I'm doing a movie with him, and he has to shoot me. And they tie me up, whatever, and they're going to pull me back. It's to hit me here. And he was a guy who knew guns. He knows his way around guns. He says, okay, what do you got in there? He would check. They said, oh, yeah, some Brooklyn prop guy who maybe it was the second movie, Big Mouth. I got everything under control. All about a thing. Hey, I work with Mazzola. I work with, you know, those guys. Right. Oh, I, got, I got everything nailed down. Don't worry about a thing. You know, those guys. Okay. Yeah. Prop guy. He shoots me. Pretty close. And I got hit so hard from something that the guys pulling me back really didn't have to pull me back. And I went wow. down. And okay. And he ran over to me. He said, I didn't like what that looked like. Are you all right? I said, I don't know. I feel like I punched in my chest. And they didn't, they put in full loads, not half loads or quarter loads. Oh. And they didn't know what they would do. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. But, but it wasn't like what happened. There. But still, it was cold. Yeah. You don't want and to have close. He was going to close down the set for the day. He really got angry. He said, Yeah. Bullshit. No, he was a good guy. He said, This is, you guys better know what you're doing with this thing. Brooklyn guy, you know what I mean? Don't worry about it. I got everything under control. Yeah, that's uh, something you don't want to play with, clearly. I guess one more yeah. question that I did have as far as, because you, you've worked with all sorts of directors, and yeah. what do you think is the quality of the directors that you've worked with that are the best at working with actors? What sets them apart? Mark Rydell is a great actor, a great director, but he's an actor himself, a wonderful actor understands how to create obstacles for an actor to leap. He's a method guy at the actor's studio, Mark Rydell, wonderful. I'm going to look out for his work. Oh, yeah, On Golden Pond, On Golden Pond. Wonderful movies he's done. Cinderella Liberty, great movies. Look him up, Mark Rydell. Yeah, definitely heard of the films, but I have to watch them. Of course, Marty Scorsese. Yeah, Fantastic. Um, a director, Tommy Mignoni, who I just did a movie with uh, called Latin for Manhattan. It's up in the Portland Film Festival. I did a movie with him. It's going to open the Portland. He's an he's a di- actor's director. I did a few guys who really know how have an actor's language. I know how to talk to an actor. But most don't. I got it, man. They have their vision. They've got a lot of things on their mind, those directors. And they've hired you. I think some of the great directors, they're really the great strength is in casting. 
That's so important. It's so important. The casting of it is ultra important. I like it. I like some of the directors who go, okay, my wife, we got to make this short. I'm just Oh, yes. Sure. I I, I like directors. Sometimes people will say to you, "Uh, David, a little faster, a little slower, a little louder. (laughs) This result bullshit. But don't pretend you're going to. But if you want it louder, tell me you want it louder. Am I mumbling? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, David, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being on the Film Situation podcast. Thank you so much. You're a good guy. I can see that. You got a nice face. Thank you. (laughs) I'm not an actor. You you look like a you look like an artist. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate you, and hope to stay in touch. Take care. All right. Thanks. You just listened to the Film Situation podcast with your host Seth Cota. Today's guest was David Preval. Executive Producer Jeff Cutler. Original music by Yuri Ryback.